Hey guys, Montel here, and thanks so much for tuning in to Free Thinking with Montel. And I'm so excited to have my guest on today. My guest is today is a filmmaker, freelance journalist, and a creative professional from Omaha, Nebraska. He's a graduate of the University of Nebraska, Omaha, and has held roles at Film Streams, the Omaha World Herald, and Sojourn. He's also recently contributed to a PBS American Portrait series representing Nebraska. He's also the director and writer and producer of How Much Sleep Have You Lost, a documentary which is a multi-year odyssey that examines racism, privilege, and faith in Omaha, Nebraska. He also sits on the board of MORE, Movement on Omaha for Racial Equity, Mr. Nick Bilyeu. Thanks so much, sir, for being a part of Free Thinking with Montel today, sir. Thank you, Montel. It's a, it's a huge honor to be on here and uh, really looking forward to talking with you. Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to make sure I pronounce your last name correctly. How do you pronounce it? Is it Bull-Yur? You're very close. It's Bull Year. Bull Year. Yeah, there's a kind of strange R at the end. Very interesting writing. I mean, the way, the way you write it, too. It's very, very interesting. So, no, thank you so much for being here, sir. You've worked on several. I mean, you've got a pretty story uh, career here. You know, what, um, you know, first off, you got selected to participate in. Um, uh, the PBS specials that's called American Portrait. And why was that so important to you to be a part of that? Yeah, that was, a you know, really cool to be a part of. I mean, first of all, just to to do something for PBS as a young filmmaker was pretty amazing. Um, but when I saw the mission of this project, it aligned a lot with the work that I was already doing, which was basically to try to find some stories that were about unity, that were about hope, uh, and really about what it means to be American, what it means to pursue the American dream. And to be able to represent Nebraska in that bunch uh, was was a cool opportunity because, you know, Nebraska and, and Omaha specifically is my hometown. And I was excited to be able to cover my state and my city in a really authentic way that I don't think someone who uh, who doesn't have ties here would have been able to do. So, so that was important to me, and and it was just uh, it was also fun to find people that I thought could really represent the city well. And why don't you explain how this series was put together? I mean, they wanted each individual film uh, contributor to find a certain number of people of different backgrounds. Explain that a little bit. Yeah. So so all the filmmakers that they that they assigned for this, they were supposed to find five people from the city and then find a different uh, bunch of stories for each of them. And they gave you prompts to ask them basically like my American dream started when, or, um, you know, questions about the pandemic ending, they kind of had these set prompts. And what's cool about the fact that all of these shared prompts, what, what could happen is you could search the prompts online and you could see from all across the country, all of these people that that registered and gave answers to them so in that way it kind of united all of the people from around the u.s um and people were common with a common theme and multiple multiple common themes yeah and to think that this came out in 2020 right i mean think about how many different key issues arose worth talking about in this way you know with covid with racial justice with politics and you know in an election year it was like the perfect year for something like this to come out and which story did you present that you thought was one of those impactful for American portraits? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, the story that um, 
that I like telling people about is the one of Maria and her grandmother, Lola. Um, Maria is my age and, and her grandmother is 93. Um, and she immigrated to America from the Philippines. And what was cool is I actually let Maria film uh, her whole experience with her grandmother. I kind of gave her some tips on how to film it. And then I edited it for her because of COVID. Um, and it was just such a touching story about how close you can be with your family, despite a generation gap like that. I mean, it's, you know, 93 to, I think Maria is 25. Uh, and, and, and also just how inspiring uh, Lola's story was uh, given that she immigrated to the United States and really sought her own unique American dream. That one uh, was really cool. I was really, really privileged to be able to tell that story. Well, you know, now, I mean, uh, what surprised you the most about working on that American portrait project? I think what surprised me the most was that, um, you know, each person I, I think I approached, I thought I knew something about them and thought I kind of had them pegged in one way, but I ended up learning a lot more about them. Like for example, uh, Brenton is, is a guy who I knew who, who operated a skate park, um, which I thought was interesting. But when I got to know him, you know, I learned about how much he knew about music as an as a musician and how much uh he spent time uh in film and filming things and it was like all of these dimensions would start to come out about people um that you know at first glance if you don't get to know someone you you, you sort of just assume that they're one thing or that they do one thing right and so to see just the different amount of careers and the different amount of uh specialties people had was pretty sweet well, you know, let's talk a little bit about your background and, and what you brought to this project also, because, again, you had to go and look for five basically unique stories and then pick which dimension they were going to go in. Right. And you base that on yeah. your own background. Let's talk about a little bit about your upbringing in Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah. So, I, I spent I, I was in Omaha, Nebraska. Didn't isn't Omaha, Nebraska, the home of Boys Town? It is. Yeah. So you've been before. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I spoke at Boys Town, Omaha, Nebraska about 20 years ago, maybe more than that, 25 years ago, 30 years ago. Lord, I'm dating myself, but I did. <laughs> well, Bo Boys Town is actually kind of where I grew up. It's sort of like in, in West Omaha, uh, which is kind of considered the, the suburban part of the city. So uh, Omaha is a town uh, kind of right in the middle of the country. Uh, it, it's the biggest town in Nebraska. And, um, you know, for me, and this informs so much of kind of my career, my storytelling now, it's like, you know, I really kind of grew up in, you know, this white Christian community. Uh, I went to, you know, a, a Catholic grade school. I went to a high school that was, that was pretty all white. Uh, and it was a really comfortable way to grow up. You know, we were kind of in, in middle-class America, what, what you would expect. Um, but then I went to college also in Omaha. I went to the University of Nebraska, Omaha. And I started to meet friends and, and, and develop relationships with people that came from all different parts of the city. And it showed me that Omaha is pretty segregated. And at the time I thought that this was just unique to maybe Omaha. I've learned since then that's, you know, that, that this is pretty common across the country, but I was meeting kids from South Omaha, which is a pretty big Latino community. I was meeting kids from North Omaha, which is the, the black community in Omaha. And uh, it really made me think a lot about, my upbringing in Omaha and the things that I grew up with and thought about the city. And uh, yeah, it really kind of changed me in a way. Yeah. When you were reflecting at this at a young, you're a young age, you're going to college and 
you're reflecting on this. I mean, what what stood out to you? Uh, did you did you feel a sense of a? I'm only asking these questions not in uh, with any aspersions or anything, but did you feel a sense of, you know, I don't know, um, um, justified, you know, not racism but right? Uh, do you feel white privilege? Did you feel as if you had missed out on things by not having more of a multicultural upbringing, or how did you feel? Sure. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think back then in college, I was still really, really naive and really uneducated, especially when it came to racism and privilege. I mean, I, I would say back then, uh, even shortly before I started my film, I don't know if I would have bought into the idea of, of white privilege. But the thing that I did know back then was that Omaha had a segregation problem and that Omaha had a disparity problem that no one talked about. And I thought to me at the time, I was like, you know, maybe it's because of this Midwest niceness we have, you know, people really like conflict avoidance. Uh, they, you know, the, that's really part of the culture, like Nebraska nice and the good life are like two of our slogans, right? People don't like to shake things up. And I always attributed some of these disparities to that because if you look at the numbers, like in 2015, like the black homicide rate in Omaha was uh, was the second highest in the country, and it had popped around at the, in the highest. So this was a serious problem that that registered on the national level. And back then, I thought it, it had more to do with this Midwest culture. And it's interesting over the years as I started actually working on on my project and studying this, how much I learned about you know racism and about white privilege and about white supremacy and and how much that informs all of this stuff, you know, all of that. When I started, I was, I mean, uh, I was so naive to all of that. Well, let's just say you're talking about when you say you started working on a project, you're talking about the project that was called how much sleep have I lost? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, the working title. And by the way, this is, this is my first time publicly talking about this project. So I'm really stoked to do it here with you. No, I'm, I'm really interested. Let's, let's, let's go back to its Genesis. Why did it even start? Why did you even come up with this as an idea? Totally. Yeah. So uh, kind of uh, like I hinted at earlier, when, when, when we talk about that segregation and the fact that these statistics were so glaring and the, the flip side of the statistics were that Omaha was registering as like the best place to raise a family, uh, lowest unemployment in the country, all these really great stats. Right. And I was thinking, okay, we love promoting the good stats. Why can't we talk about the bad stats? That was the genesis for the film. And and I studied journalism in college. So uh, it started as a, as a journalistic endeavor. So I was doing sit-down interviews with, with experts. I was going to panels and events and filming those type of things, doing research to try to find this stuff out. And five years later, and we can cover the middle, it's actually evolved to turn into a personal project and a personal documentary film because I started to realize and ask myself, where do I fit into this equation? You know, I, I've been sitting kind of as this, uh, you know, pretending to be a fly on the wall as a journalist, but sort of not recognizing how do I, as a person, as a white person uh, with privilege, play a role in this story and in, in, in this moment. And it took the film in some really interesting directions. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. I mean, you again, get, paint, paint about another a broader picture of, you know, Omaha, Nebraska. Talk a little bit more. You, you said, you know, the northern part of the city is mostly a black enclave. The south, what do you say, southeastern part of the city is more of a Hispanic enclave. I remember when I was there, you know, I came out there on a, um, back when I was speaking around the country, and I really literally, I think um, this was, mm, 
I think this was in, I'll tell you, I'm going to date myself here, but I think this was in 1989, 1990. Mm -hmm. um, before I even started my talk show, I um, came out to Omaha, Nebraska, to that boys club, to, to Boys Town, to talk about gangs, because uh, gangs had made their way to Omaha. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was uh, quite a bit of a gang, you know, um, uh, affiliation going on with, multiple different gangs from around the country. And I remember one thing that stood out in my mind that I thought was really kind of crazy was that not only were there Hispanic bloods and crips, but there were a couple white bloods and crips. And I thought, that's really crazy. I had never seen this anywhere else in the country. Um, and that was my only takeaway from Omaha, but to paint a picture of Omaha, Nebraska, so people can understand. Yeah. You know, it, it's hard to make uh, a generalization about Omaha because it's actually bigger than people think. You know, it's like... I think Omaha proper is 500,000. If you include the Metro and some suburban areas like, uh, like Bellevue and some places it can grow up to be a million. So, um, it, it's a town that loves sports. Uh, Husker football is, is like the cultural kind of, uh, you know, real hub of, of Omaha and Nebraska as a whole. But what's great is there's all these, there's almost a small pocket, and a small community for everything. So there's a little film pocket and it's, it's everyone kind of knows each other, but it's, it's, it's fun and it's powerful. Same with arts, same with music. Uh, the food scene is, is, is actually very, very powerful in Omaha. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Like in, in the South Omaha, like along 24th street, there's some amazing authentic uh, Mexican food. And in North Omaha, there's some incredible soul food. In fact, one of the people I featured on American Portrait series was uh, Big Mama's Kitchen, uh, ran by Gladys Harrison, who actually ran for Congress uh, while running her restaurant, which is pretty amazing. Um, and then I think the two things Omaha is really known for, the Cauldrilled Series uh, baseball tournament happens every year in Omaha, and we've got a great zoo. So... Uh, I think I've I think I've now checked the box on uh, trying to represent Omaha to some people who who might not be familiar. And you know now, but but were were the races interacting or were they uh, separately? You know, you say you got great restaurants, different ethnic kind of restaurants, but were they you know segregated racially or were they? Uh, did people cross the line and go to any restaurant that they wanted to go to? Yeah, I mean I. I certainly felt like there was some isolation that came with the segregation. I mean, it, it, of course it makes sense for there to be a community of people of the same kind of culture and background, but I, I totally agree that there wasn't much mixing and much interaction, especially in my, my upbringing. I mean, in West Omaha, which is where I grew up, um, I never went to North Omaha or South Omaha at all. Um, and even though it, it it had really valuable things to check out, no matter your age, you know, and and I remember, you know, a big thing that I think played a large role in this was the news, you know, like the there were so many news stories about violence that would that would happen, and it would always be about violence in North Omaha, and, and these headlines would be very scary, and I think that had a huge impact in our city around people feeling unsafe or feeling like it was a dangerous neighborhood. Uh, and there's so many components to that, uh, that had an effect on me and, and my friends and my family. I know. So, um, yeah, I guess to, to answer your question for a long time, I don't think there was very much interaction between the communities at all. And so now you decided to take on this project, which, 
Again, what's the title of it again? Um, right now, it's How Much Sleep Have You Lost? And and why did you name it that? Begin with one. Yeah, and I'll say that it's kind of a working title for now. Who know? You know, who knows what that will turn into? But uh, I was interviewing a man named Robert uh, Robert Wagner. We were doing a a ride along interview in his car. He used to run a, a well. He still runs the organization called Project Knows, which is keep North Omaha safe for everyone. And he would basically try to defuse police situ- uh, situations where the police might get involved. He would try to kind of get there first and see what he could do to defuse situations. And we rode around with him and did an interview one night. And it was one of the things that he said to me rhetorically when he was talking about some of these families who have lost uh, children to violence. He's, you know, he said rhetorically, how much sleep have you lost? And I thought you know, when the project was starting, it was this kind of powerful double entendre that, okay, that clearly there's a a big portion of people here that are losing sleep. And it made me think, okay, well, where I come from, how much sleep are people losing, right? Um, Are they losing any sleep over this? And so that's kind of why I named it that to start. Gotcha. And, you know, as you, this is, you said, it's a five year uh, long project uh, still in the making. Um, I'm sure you look back and thought about the history of Omaha and, and what had taken place racially there before you ventured down this path. So what was Omaha's history like? I mean, were there, were there was a lot of unrest between the North and the West, or was it really isolated violence in, in their own communities? Yeah, great question. There's a really rich and detailed history when it kind of comes to how things have become how they are. I think a couple of things worth referencing. A big one is in, in 1919, uh, which they called the red summer across America. Then if you're familiar with that, right. um, there was a, a lynching in Omaha, Will Brown. And we just had the, we had the hundred year commemoration of that in 2019, which I filmed. And I mean, it was just a, a, a horribly brutal case of of racial violence where i mean not only was he lynched but he was really tortured and and sort of displayed around the city and uh they tried to hang the mayor at the same time uh they were they the tried, mayor black the mayor was white um yeah. of, of omaha they tried to set the courthouse on fire they ended up bringing a national guard so it was like a really bit you know it was a, a great example of the times for where omaha was when it came to this issue now jump ahead to uh, the 1960s, um, and there were several riots in in uh, North Omaha around racism, uh, kind of in response to certain things. There was, uh, you know, Martin Luther King's assassination sparked protests, just like it did all across the country. Uh, there was a, a young girl killed by police named Vivian Strong. She was killed. Uh, in Omaha by by the police and and the officer was acquitted and that sparked protests and what was you know so heartbreaking about these protests is that because they were happening in, in North Omaha um, it, it led to a lot of destruction and and not a lot of repair afterwards there wasn't uh, investment by the city or by people for so long to try to make up for the damage that happened because uh, before that, you know, Omaha had a black community that really was thriving from an infrastructure perspective, from a business perspective, uh, and the protests hurt that a lot. And I have to say, you know, while talking about this, that I'm uh, 
by no means an expert. This is just kind of my, what I've learned and how I've interpreted some of the history by some of the people I really trust and that I've talked to. I would definitely encourage people to look into it themselves. But yeah, there there is definitely a, a history of how we've got to where we are that's certainly worth exploring for people. And so that's really what kind of inspired you to create this documentary. But what's your objective? What are you trying to do with how much sleep have you lost? Are you trying to now point out the ills of the path and show past and show how far you have or have not gotten today? Or is it more of, you know, a, a look at, you know, how a city can change? I mean, what, what, what's your impression on Omaha now? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will say the the objective of the film is to show people an idea of what they can do to be better because the film really made a pretty radical turn in the sense that I started thinking really hard about the fact that I was a white person making this and what did that mean? Um, you know, this was, I was thinking about this back in like 2018, 2019 after I'd done a lot of filming and I started to realize what, what can I really bring to the table here as a, as a white person? And two, what is my story to tell? And I realized that my story to tell was, was my experience and what I could do to help other people like me who want to be better, um, you know, to give them some ideas of what to do. So the, that's where the filmmaking actually turns quite personal and kind of something we haven't talked about was, you know, I grew up in a very conservative political family and that led to lots of, you know, disagreements on a variety of subjects and, and race was sometimes one of them. And I decided to bring those conversations into my household, uh, particularly with my dad to talk about this stuff and to try to see, you know, what can we do here to try to gain some understanding? And, and, um, and that's something that I think people in my shoes, um, can really do. And so I really tried to take the film and, and put it in a place where people were maybe empowered to do something in their own life. Okay. I mean, how did that affect when you, when now you're talking about very sensitive issues in your own family, were you filming those sensitive issues? I was. So what's interesting is, uh, so my father, um, and I, we taped several interviews talking about kind of our political differences because, we started growing pretty distant over it, especially when, when Donald Trump was elected in 2016. And as I, you know, here I am out, you know, kind of filming all these things in Omaha, right? I'm learning so much about the city and about racism and, and about history and all this stuff. And I realized that every time I come home, it's like, I can't talk about the project. Like I can't talk about it without it being confrontational or awkward and and I also was was missing something in my film. I was missing this sort of like real honesty about things that I just wasn't able to find with strangers. And some people were like, "Well, why don't you, why don't you talk to your family, you know, and and think about what could come from that." And then what happened was, my dad was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer, and mm. I thought, well, you know, here is an opportunity to really reconnect with my dad you know, let's embrace where we're at and just that there was no time anymore. You know, there was no time to keep pushing this, this issue off. And once I did that, it took me in so many different places. I had no idea it was going to go. I mean, we got into, 
religion, we got into what it means to be a parent, uh, we got into dealing with your own mortality, we got into, of course, the political differences and the, and the racial differences. And so it was from that point forward that all of these sort of universal things started to emerge that were really fascinating to me. And, and that's what really changed the project tremendously. Well, I mean, did you, I mean, how did you, from doing the interviews yourself, you would know, I mean, how did your father react to, or how did, what was his impression of what you were doing? Did he think this is something you don't need to show people? Or did he think he was proud enough to let you show this? Um, does he differ with you even to today, knowing or learning some of the things that you have learned in your journey, or does he still just feel the same way he's felt his life? Yeah, well, I have to give him a lot of credit for for showing up to to do the interviews because I I mean he obviously knew that I was going to come at him with with some tough questions, um, you know I think that he and and to give you some perspective he 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 passed away last fall. I'm um, so sorry to hear that. So sorry for your loss. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but but when I when I reflect back on on the interviews, you know, he. You know, when someone is is so ideologically entrenched, and and my dad was very conservative, you know, I knew that a lot of the things that that I was coming at him with weren't going to change his mind about stuff. Uh, after a couple interviews, that just became apparent. And so, to me, I tried to make kind of a adjustment on okay, rather than trying to convince or persuade, let's try to understand a little bit more, right? Um, and I think when we got to that place. My dad actually really enjoyed the conversations because it gave him a platform to talk about some regrets that he had uh, as a young parent that I had never heard before. That was like very, very interesting. It also gave him a chance to really reflect on life and what it means to really have honesty and transparency with, with your loved ones. Um, and, you know, what? what it's funny because when I got to this point where this was where my film was at, it's like, I thought I had figured it out, right? I thought that, okay, I was making kind of the wrong film before and now I'm at where I'm supposed to be. And then now I look at these interviews and there's so much I wish I would have done differently. And what that tells me is that you never have it figured out. You just keep learning. You just keep making mistakes. You just keep going. And it took me actually to go through that with my dad and to kind of have to grieve his loss and see that uh, I didn't go as far as I wish we would have, or I didn't, we didn't solve exactly what I wanted to do, but that's kind of life. That's how these issues go. There's not perfect resolutions. And uh, the kind of fusion of those two things, that sort of processing that and also realizing that that's a part of the journey to me was profound and also empowering. And philosophically, you clearly saw that there were a lot more people who felt the same way your dad did, right? Yeah. I mean, it, Totally. Um, friends, family, you know, just across America, people you don't know. I mean, I went to, um, before the election, there was a, a Trump rally in Omaha that I did go to and filmed. And I mean, there was thousands of people there. I mean, I, I thousands of people who didn't get in. And I think it doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're on, you can get in these spaces where you really forget about who the other side is and how big the other side is. Right. And, uh, and, and that's something that, that certainly I, time and time again, I was getting reminded of when I explored this issue with my dad. 
I mean, now, from your perspective, and looking at now five years of, of researching and trying to get a handle on not just the genesis of this hate and the genesis of the racism and the genesis of the separation, but trying to understand how it's morphing now and where it's going, what do you come away with? Do you, do you think that there's hope for us or do you think that we are going to be entrenched in this feeling of separatism forever? Right. Yeah. That's the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, you know, I think that bias, uh, is always going to exist. You know, it's like, there's what? sort of, I think bias will, will, will always exist. Um, and I think that, you know, humans are kind of naturally tribal in certain senses. And so there's always going to be this, this conflict inherently on some degree. Now I think, you know, racism has so much to do with, with power. Uh, and I think that it really depends on in the future, if we can really change power in this country to, to really give equity and power to marginalized communities, uh, communities of color to, to really share resources in that way. I think that is a, is a huge way uh, to make progress and, and seeing, I'm seeing changes like that happen. That is giving me some hope. Um, but from what, you know, things that I can do and what I hope this film can do, if, if people can just start to maybe look in the mirror a little bit, especially white people and see that they play a role in this, that, that when it comes to race, white people play a very active role and, and, and how our society exists, you know, if we can get a whole generation raised on that type of thinking, it's going to make a huge deal, I think. Well, you know, it's very interesting. Though. What what kind of pushback are you getting from your peers? How old are you? Are you 25, 26? 26. Mm -hmm. 26. So, I mean, I, I've got a 26-year-old daughter who, you know, um, uh, lives in L.A. And, you know, her perspective and her peers' perspective, she happens to be biracial, but, you know, her, her peers' perspective, her boyfriend who is Caucasian and some of their friends are multi-ethnic, you know, they have one take on race. And then some of their friends have another take on race. And, you know, in your generation, it, uh, you know, I, 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 sometimes I say, you know, I find hope in your generation because it just seems as if you guys are really just trying to figure out how to, you know, move along this planet and this journey of life without tipping over somebody else's apple cart. But at the same time, there are those in your generation that still want to go knock over an apple cart. I'm like, you know, where do you get this from? What, what do you, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I, I think, you know, our, you know, our generation was raised on the internet, and I think that that's had a really interesting effect on millennials and generations below us, and how we are. On one sense, I think we're much more informed and much more educated faster than than other generations. Now, I don't think that that uh, makes up for real life experience by any means, but from a theoretical perspective, it does, I think, help you be um, just a better advocate in so many ways. But I think the flip side of that is there are so many people that have found uh, solace in sort of online communities, you know, like uh, people find these spaces that fill them up if they have anxiety or if they have depression or uh, they have certain loneliness and sometimes these communities are good. Sometimes they're really unhealthy and they can foster extremist views or they can, they can just foster, you know, unhealthy ways of thinking. And 
So I think you can't discount that when like for people in, in my generation, like the internet has just affected us in the way that we've grown up and in our life so much. And th- that's really what I would attribute so much of that dynamic to. Wow. And I mean, so uh, now, now when, when do you project that possibly, you know, how much sleep I've lost will be finished? So there's some filming that I want to do um, this, this spring and summer still. Um, and I'm, this is my first time feature. And so I'm learning a lot about the timeline of, of making a full movie. And it's also been largely, you know, the first four years were self-funded and we were lucky to get a little bit of uh, some local funding by some really generous people um, early on uh, last year. So there there's a few factors that will determine that outcome, but basically I want to do a little bit of filming um, this spring and summer to kind of close out my story. And then the edit I'm, I'm predicting is actually going to take a while. I think the edit is going to take nine to nine to 12 months once we actually begin it. And the reason for that is my story is very narration driven. So, um, there's a lot of writing involved and I've, I'm learning this right now by making some sample materials that um, you can create a whole scene based on me being behind the camera and how I'm thinking and how I'm projecting that thought from writing. There's so much work to do to make that play well with the footage that it makes for a much longer edit. So um, I'm hoping that sometime next year, you know, probably in the back half of next year, the film will be ready. Uh, and, and I'm trying to move as fast as I can because after five years of, of working on it, there's no one who wants it done faster than me, but I'm also being patient because, uh, I think it's important. And, uh, and I think for everyone who's participated in it, you know, I, I want to give them, uh, the best film that I can. And do you have an objective in mind? Does a film follow a theme that you had to begin with or has it changed organically as you've collected material and so now you don't really even know whether or not the film is going to be a statement of you know why can't we figure this out or is it more of a historical look or is it more of a question that's left in the mind of the viewer have you figured that out yet yeah i mean and it is something that's evolved and i think the one word thing is it's about self-examination. It's about, I hope that someone can watch this and it's almost like a mirror because I am really going to be walking people through my journey of the highs and lows of making this film. You know, my trajectory as a storyteller is kind of part of the story itself. And you're going to go down these side roads where you stick with characters, uh, for example, in North Omaha, or you'll stick with my family for a little bit, or you'll bounce out here or there, but it's always going to come back to me. And the hope is that by people kind of putting themselves in my shoes from this experience, there's lots of different ways people can relate, especially on that family piece for, for people that have someone who they feel like they're not empowered to have a personal conversation with because they have a difference. They're going to see me do that same thing. And and they're going to see the, the awkwardness and, and the sort of the, the, the emotions that come with that. And I'm, my, I'm hoping that people can watch that might inspire them to do something or it might inspire them to think a little bit differently about their life is, is really what I'm hoping it can do. And, you know, now this journey, how has it impacted you? I mean, do you, do you see yourself having changed from the first day you started uh, shooting and, Do you think that your perspective on race and on what's happening in America has changed 
through this journey? And, you know, has it changed for the good, for the bad? Have you uh, become more jaded, become more, you know, optimistic? What? Great question. Um, you know, I, I think that the biggest thing that I've learned and that I have grown from in this experience is really embracing the idea that the work never stops and that your education on these issues never stops. I think I used to think that you, you would just get it after a while and then you help other people get it, um, get it in quotes being sort of like understanding the nuances of racism or of, um, societal conflicts or whatever type of, uh, you know, thing you want to enter in there. And what I've realized is that it's just always a process of learning and discovering and asking yourself questions. I, you know, I wasn't asking myself questions before I got to this part of the film, you know, um, about who I am and what I, you know, want to be and, and, and how I want to present myself as a person and as a journalist, because, you know, that kind of got lost along the way when I was with my family. Is it, This started as a journalism progress for, pr project when I was just trying to find the truth, right? You know, I was just trying to find the facts. And it took me down this very winded, you know, winding road. And now I'm trying to come out the other side in that same place, but also as someone who understands a little bit more about um, their own personal role in this stuff. So, you know, I don't think I have any more or less hope or feel any more or less jaded than when I started. But when it comes to how I think about my what I can do as a person, I certainly feel like I can do a lot more and I can do things differently than I ever imagined when I started this thing. I mean, when you when you take a look at the news and you, you see the fact that even till today, right now, though, you know, most of those people protesting, most of those people expressing some sort of anger with, you know, our system are really just hiding what is truthfully deep down inside of them at their core. And that is hate for whatever the reason may be. And sometimes I think that some people, you know, don't even know why they hate. You know, I think that they just think that it's the right thing. And I've, I heard what you said very clearly about the fact that mankind is tribal. I mean, that's one of our survival techniques. That's the reason why we exist. Um, uh, and mankind looks for those who are like-minded to associate with. But at the same time, I mean, do you find yourself talking to your peers um, who are not part of your movie and explaining to them the things that you've learned. I mean, if let's say that, uh, you know, the president decided that he watched your film and figured that this was a really good opportunity to make, you know, America turn a flashlight and a spotlight on themselves. What would you say to him? And what would you say to those who you were given a platform to talk to about how they should start thinking about their place in the society? Right. Um, great question. Well, I, you know, when you were talking about the, you know, the people who have this kind of hatred inside of them, I also think that what's inside of them is fear. And I think that's, that's actually a universal quality is we all have that kind of fear in us on some level. Some of us express it in that type of intense way. And for some people, they're much more afraid than others, but we all have some kind of a minor flame of fear either it's a it's an insecurity or it's something more than that that makes us overreact or act you know 
uh, in, in ways that are, are unpredictable. And I think recognizing that makes us all a bit closer, a bit more human. It helps bridge gaps a little bit to realize like, look, life, life can be hard for anyone. You know, it doesn't matter sort of where you're at, um, you know, from, from all the different angles. Right. And so, you know, that's what, that's what I would say when it's, especially when it comes to approaching people who are different than you, recognizing that there's some fear somewhere in there that maybe, you know, maybe as a part of this, that helps you maybe be a little bit more sympathetic and empathetic to causes. Um, because I mean, I definitely learned through my film that like yelling isn't going to get you anywhere or trying to shame someone into a certain belief isn't going to get you anywhere. And so having that empathy is so key. And before you can have that empathy, you need to try, you need to try to unpack where that person is. Uh, and oftentimes it's, it's around fear. Yeah. You know, it's very interesting. I, I used to speak on the principle of, you know, um, do you know what a beach ball looks like? Yeah. Like the, with the colors around it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the colors around a beach ball are normally like white, red, green, white, blue, white. So, if I were to be sitting here, like right now, we're looking at each other. If I was holding a beach ball and looking at one side of that beach ball myself, I might see white, green, white. You might see, you know, yellow, white, blue. And if I'm holding it right here in front of me and you're looking at yours right in front of you, we could sit here and argue for the next 25 minutes about what it is we see and what color the beach ball is. And you would say, no, it's white, yellow, blue. And I'd say, no, it's white, green, white. And you'd say, no, no, no. Then all I have to do is just turn my head a little bit this way. And now all of a sudden I see white, yellow, white, and you see blue, white, green. Mm. Mm. I turn my head this way. I see white, blue, white, and you see, you know, uh, yellow, white, green. Hmm. So all I have to do is just take a little look at someone else's perspective. If I turn that ball just a little bit, one panel, both of us see a different ball, completely different ball. And both of us are still right about what we see, but now we're seeing it from a different perspective. And I think that's where, you know, unfortunately, you know, I, I don't see enough people in our society who are willing to just take a look that way. Right? Yeah. Move a little bit. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. No. And you know what that actually made me think a lot about is we live in this, in this world where it's so hard to find uh, agreed upon facts too, because everyone's drawn from different news sources. So we can't, sometimes we're not even looking at the same beach ball. Some, sometimes there's lots of different beach balls that, that people are, are, are looking at. And so I think we got to get back to the place where we're, we can have an established set of facts or an established beach ball. And uh, because we've gotten that far away. Right. You hope we'll get back. You think we're, we could get back there. You think that I mean, you got to test them. And, you know, over the course of the next, I don't know if you've, you know, put the anxiety of, you know, global warming and climate change and what's going on in this world and factor that also in because, again, when you talk about power, you're talking about, you know, those who control resources and those resources are going to become very limited over the course of the next 10 to 20 years. You know, I mean, I just saw, you know, a, a report last week about this huge, you know, New York State or New York uh, Manhattan size iceberg. It just broke off. Yeah, I saw that too. Oh, right. And that's going to 
probably over the next 10 to 15 years, depending on the speed as that melts, that's going to do somewhere between a four and five inch sea level raise in the Atlantic. So all the cities that border the Atlantic are going to flood. I mean, you know, I'm a little older than you, but well, I may be a lot older than you. (laughs) Um, Being older than you, I'm not going to have to bear the brunt of this. You are. Your generation is going to have to. The fact that, you know, when we know that almost 80% of the people on this planet live in coastal areas, because that's been how we've moved and shipped goods and moved and migrated. You look at the United States of America, we're a country of the periphery. And the periphery is going to start to shrink. And, you know, and that's going to start to damage, you know, coastal, you know, farming areas and coastal arid uh, planting areas. And so resources are going to become more limited. You know, I hope that we are at a point where we try to figure out how we get through this together rather than how we get rid of those to make it easier for us to get through it by ourselves. Yeah, well, I think all of those things can be natural unifiers in a certain way, almost by by force, right? It's like if if uh, the world is starting to flood, we don't have much uh, option other than to work together, right? <laughs> you know that that really makes everyone set differences aside. Um, I you know I feel some uh, hope and inspiration for the fact that lots of people in my demo care a lot about climate change. You know. Uh, my my cousin is only uh, I don't even think she's she's 18 yet, but she you know she runs this like Instagram for for kids her age to talk about how to be um, better about renewable you know about recycling and and you know advocating about renewable energy and all this stuff and it's like really high level stuff for people at a pretty young age. Um, but you know as far as how I feel about that stuff personally, one you know I I think I just. I have faith in, in a higher power that things will work out, hopefully. And two, uh, you know, I see lots of stuff out there about space exploration and about possible colonization of space. And it's like maybe by you know the end of my days, we you know we might not just be on Earth. Maybe we'll be on uh, you know Mars or some some other place. But I'm curious, what? How does it make you feel, given that you know you have? Uh, you know, you mentioned, I think your daughter and, and uh, other younger people than yourself. How does it make you feel thinking about stuff like that? I, I fear for you. I fear for what your generation is going to have to deal with, because I think that, you know, as much as I want to try to believe that the better characteristics of man can, you know, rise above the chaff, I see the vestiges of it all over America that, no, the worst characteristics of man seems to be on a rise and things work in cycles. So, you know, we may see this rise of hate and anarchy for 10 years before we start to slide into the position of wanting to work together, but it could end up being too late. I hate to be so, you know, nihilistic or so, so, you know, uh, uh, glass half you know, empty, but I, I really hope that, you know, one of the things that, and and maybe one of the things that I'm, I'm excited about is that I think that, you know, we've gone through this cycle where if you really stop and think about it, other than, you know, the last administration's time here, we haven't really lived in a time in this world where one person well wielded that much power. 
you know, you go back in the sixties where you had, you know, Martin Luther King, you had Malcolm X, you had John Kennedy, you had, you know, the other Kennedys, you had, you know, leaders, uh, even uh, those uh, in the South that, that were leaders, you know, society seemed to glom onto that individual. Now all of a sudden, because of the internet, the internet's the individual. Mm -hmm. I think that a leader will rise again. I think that there's going to be leadership out of your generation that may school all of us old bastards, you know what I mean? And teach us that maybe, you know, our ways should have been dead and gone years ago. And I think when that happens and people have something that they can grab onto and recognize that change is worth living for, then we could survive this. But I know that's like, that's a weird answer, but you know, I, 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 I hate to be so pessimistic, but, uh, Sure. You know, I think that's where my little hope of optimism is. Well, yeah, I'm glad you brought it back to to the internet too, because think we've had the internet for, I guess, close to 30 years, but really only usage for like 20 with the with common people. That's not a lot of time to figure out something so massive and so consequential to to every day of life, right? I mean, this right here would not be happening without right. the internet, right? I'm sure you've thought about how different your career would have been in the beginning had the internet existed, right? I mean, it, it, so much uh, has changed the world because of the internet. And so I think- much in, So much has changed in even the last two years. Yeah. I mean, you know, we went to a, from a society that, you know, at least wanted to question. And then when they questioned things, they tried to look up answers. Now we live in a society that, you know, your answer is instantaneous. It's at your, your fingertips. And most people will, you know, search for an answer and don't really fully understand the meaning of what it is they search for. Yeah. That's what bothers me. I think, you know, and, and I, I'm with you. I think the internet, you know, though it has, you know, leapt us forward by 30, 40 years, and it's going to continue. We're going to make these huge leaps and bounds. That's the fact that we, you just even said that we could be in a position to colonize another planet. Are you kidding me? <laughs> right, right. We are, we are less than 100 years ago, we didn't even have a wheel that didn't break after, you know, 10 usages. Come on now. And we're yeah. thinking about flying out, and, and we have private corporations that are doing this, not governments that are doing this. Yeah, you know, and we exponentially increase our knowledge base, you know, by I think it's exponentially, you know, by 10 to 15 times every single month, you know, uh, 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 and, and science improves that much every month. So where are we going to be, you know, where used to be, where will we be 20 years from now? No, where are we going to be next year? I know. Well, you know, what actually worries me and makes me a little bit more afraid than actually some of the more humanistic elements of this is like, how is artificial intelligence going to play a role in our future? How are the fact that we might have medical technology in the future where you could put a device or some kind of chip and all of a sudden the pe people who are blind can see and all of a sudden people who are paralyzed can walk. Now the line is becoming a bit muddy between what's human and what is beyond human. You factor that with art artificial intelligence technology and you're talking about a world that right now we can't even picture because it's going to be so different. And, but, you know, who is it? The, oh man, who's a scientist? I'm so sorry. Who has so, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease? Hawkins. Uh, Hawkins. Uh, 
you know, yeah. Stephen Hawking, Stephen Hawking said that he thinks that the thought that AI could be the downfall of mankind. And if you really stop and you think about it, the fact that right now AI is already such an integral part. AI is the reason why we have vaccines already. Mm-hmm. People don't even know that, you know, because AI was able to run 5 million test samples in, in the time that it would take, you know, uh, to, uh, normally would have taken 20 years to do. So, you know, and we are relying on it. We're about to launch a world where you don't have to pay attention when you move across space and time. We have, you know, autonomous cars, autonomous, we're going to end up having autonomous planes. We're going to have, end up having autonomous, you know, you know, what child is out picking a grape? Like, <laughs> Yeah. We kid it out picking a tomato or picking a potato. It ain't happening. Mm-hmm. And so as we rely more and more and more on technology, and we do so because we think that hmm, we are the lords of the technology, how quick will it be before we become lorded by the technology? I know. It's and, like a science fiction movie, you know. Yeah, and we give up that power and we're giving it up without question so yeah you know i <laughs> we can go on for days in this conversation yeah, yeah um and i'm wondering did you have a chance to ask any of those questions of your father before he passed? uh you know we really didn't go in that place i, I you know I, I had to get i had to be so targeted towards the end because i knew our time was limited mm-hmm. and where that a lot of that time ended up being spent was actually around faith and religion because my dad was a very spiritual person. He had a tremendous faith in God. And at the time, you know, my faith was kind of shaky. I was kind of undecided about where I landed on things. And that's where a lot of our conversations were. Was a, He was thinking about where was he going, right? And he wanted to have some assurances that I was thinking about where I might end up going one day. So then, those were the th- heady things we talked about. But then you'll think about it in the next year or so. How will that change? completely when and if this Mars rover discovers life on Mars. Totally. All of a sudden, now all of the basic tenets of religion kind of fall apart. Though, if you are truly religious and spiritual and recognize that, you know, God is supposed to be all-encompassing, that means he's bigger than the universe, and the universe is as big as anything that you can imagine, so therefore God is so much bigger than that. He may not have, in those words that have been misinterpreted and have been written down by man, you know, to suggest that he was pointing at one place as his Garden of Eden, you can interpret the saying, no, 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 maybe we got that all wrong, so therefore religion still encapsulates this, but at the same time, I think this is going to cause turmoil. It, it will, but I also think that a discovery like that, you know what I think it could actually do? I think it could help bring faith past dogma and towards actual spiritual enlightening because so many people are just stuck in the tenets and the rules of religion that are oftentimes fear-based or they're oppressive or they're even sometimes violent. And they and, what the original reasons for the religion were all about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They've cool. been contorted over history. But where the real value of faith comes in is when when you get through that stuff and, and you just try to have this sort of 
you know, spiritual oneness where, where you realize, you know, that, um, you know, you, a recognition of self, you know, and, and a connection with some kind of a higher power. It might take a discovery like that, that makes us question everything that's been written down before for us to get to that place. You're absolutely right. Well, okay. So, and you know, um, you know, who are some of your favorite filmmakers? Oh, great, great question. Um, so I've got some favorites in documentary and I got some favorites in, in, uh, fiction film in, in documentary. Um, I really love this, this filmmaker named Ross McElwee. He's really uh, a guy who, who let me see that you can make a personal documentary and that it could be interesting. Um, there's a, a filmmaker, Chantal Ackerman, who's, who's a French director who also made, uh, movies like that, that I found to be, uh, super powerful. And then on the, on the fiction side of, 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 uh, filmmaking, I love Martin Scorsese. Um, and, uh, his movies are fantastic. And the fact that, you know, he, he grew up Catholic, uh, and has these sort of faith tenets in his movies I can relate to. Um, I love Paul Schrader. Um, he's, he's a favorite filmmaker of mine too. So yeah, those are a couple of favorites of mine. Well, sir, I mean, really, really, really nice to sit down and chat with you and to get your perspective. I really appreciate you being a part of free thinking today. Um, you know, as you get closer and closer to getting ready to get this edited and ready to get it out, if you want to come back and talk a little bit more about the film itself and talk a little bit more philosophically, we'd love to have you back. Okay. Absolutely. Thanks Montel. And I, I just want to say to people watching that, you know, for me, you know, I, I saw your show as a kid, you know, growing up and, and to be on with you having, uh, you know, wanting to kind of be in your position to be on TV and to be in communications and to be in film. Uh, it's a true honor. Uh, and I, I, it's been so fun to do this. So thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you, sir. Thanks for being a part of free thinking with Montel. And I want to make sure you all tune in to the next edition of free thinking. Thanks for joining me on Free Thinking with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback, so please send us your comments.